Sometimes it's inevitable to give in Sometimes that's the only way to begin Sometimes hitting the ground with your face down is the only way Sometimes that's how you finally feel okay Welcome to the Japan Distilled Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Lyman, recording in my home studio here in Fukuoka, Japan. This week, we're mixing things up a little bit. Christopher is off. However, joining me from Tokyo is my friend Matt Alt of altjapan.com and author of several books, most recently, Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World. Matt, thank you so much for joining me on the Japan Distilled Podcast. It is always a pleasure. This is like how Japanese distillates conquered the world. That's how I like to think of your podcast. <laughs> Let's hope that that's true. <laughs> Appreciate that. <laughs> so what's on the agenda for this episode? Well, you and I actually bonded over the topic of this show. That's how we got to know each other a little bit. And that's the late, great Japanese biochemist and American immigrant, Jokichi Takamine. But before we get into that, I want to talk about cocktails for a minute because we've, we've bonded over those as well. Yes, we have. That's a subject near and dear to my heart. So what's on your mind? Well, actually, we're having currently a Japan Distilled Home Cocktail Competition. We've announced this on our live stream, and we've talked about it on social media, but not really here on the show. So what we want people to do is our listeners to experiment with making cocktails at home using shochu or awamori, so koji-based spirits, basically. And we want them to send their recipes to us through Instagram or Twitter, at Japan Distilled. And then Christopher and I will review all of the recipes and we'll pick a top five. Then we're going to go to a bar together and have a bartender make us those five drinks. And we'll pick the winner that way. And there will be prizes. Oh, I love prizes. I love the sound of this. But, you know, I don't know of many places in Tokyo that actually mix awamori and shochu. Isn't that pretty uncommon in Japanese bars at the moment? That is. So I think what we'd be doing is bringing the drink, the spirit to the bar and they'd be mixing the cocktail with their other magical ingredients. So this is really just a little bit of an experiment. We didn't want to try to make the drinks at home. We're not bartenders. We thought we'd have a professional do it for us. Good chance to, to get to know a bartender and, and have a little fun. Excellent. Well, I know some good ones here in Tokyo. Let's, uh, let's, let's liaise once you have this uh, pulled together and see what we can do. Oh, well, it sounds like we might need to recruit you as a third judge on this then. <laughs> Always happy to judge cocktails. Fantastic. So anyway, the deadline is March 1st. So send it in by March 1st. You should have about a month from the time that this podcast episode is released. And, you know, send us those cocktail recipes. I guess one little caveat is you can't make some really weird home-infused elixir that the bartender is not going to be able to recreate. I mean, you could. But then if he can't make it and doesn't taste right, you may not win. Right. So keep it simple. In other words, no fat washing, no... What are some of these other like really wild uh, cocktail mixology things they're doing these days? Oh, there's there's all sorts of things. I mean, some people do these infusions that take years, right? Yes, yes. It's like this three-year-old homemade mirin made with whatever, you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. No barrel aging for three years. We have to be able to pull this together uh, on a behind the stick, as they say. At the bar. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Great. Glad to know you're interested. It'd be great to have you uh, join us for that. We, we had an absolutely wonderful time uh, enjoying some cocktails in Tokyo a few months back. Yes, we did. Did we not enjoy some of Dr. Takamine's uh, recipe whiskey that you concocted? That's right. We actually did. That was another part of that uh, very enjoyable afternoon up in Tokyo. So, 
We've talked about Dr. Takemine before on the podcast, most prominently on episode five, which was entitled Revealing the Origins of Japanese Whiskey, and then episode eight, which was What is Authentic Whiskey? And most recently, actually, on episode 29, which is about the life of Masataka Taketsuru, the father of Japanese whiskey. But perhaps to get us started on this episode, we'll run through a quick biography of the doctor and then have a conversation about his legacy. I think that's maybe how how we should try to do this show. That sounds good. I mean, he is such a towering figure in late 19th century, early 20th century uh, Japan-US relations. Just an amazing character who really, I don't think, gets anywhere near enough attention he should, given his his legacy of, you know, I mean, this is the man who isolated adrenaline for the first time. This is the man who came up with Taka, how do you pronounce this? Diastase? Taka diastase, yep. Yes, these these enzymes that are used in all sorts of ways in in, in modern products and modern chemistry. I mean, the, the adrenaline that they give you at the hospital, hopefully they're not giving it to you, hopefully you don't need it, <laughs> is based on what uh, Dr. Takamini came up with. That's right. There's his whiskey. I mean, it's funny, like just simply having come up with this Koji process whiskey that he invented would have already put him in the history books, but it's just one part of this really, really huge legacy of of creation and invention. He's kind of like the Tony Stark <laughs> of uh of pre-modern Japan. Yeah, I like I like that uh that description tying together your interest in Japanese invention, yes. comic books and everything, all of your all of your loves together. All in one package. Um, that's right. Now I'm going to start with a trivia question, actually. Jokichi was born in 1854. What else happened that year? Well, the year before is when uh, Commodore Matthew Perry's of the of the U.S. Uh, uh, Navy sailed in unannounced on steamships, steam-powered gunboats, and basically used gunboat diplomacy to open Japanese ports to the outside world. Until this point, they had been closed for uh, 250 years or close to it. To everyone except the Dutch, who had some kind of limited concessions in uh, Nagasaki and could travel a little bit more freely than than other foreign people. So Japan had been closed off for almost a quarter of a millennium. America sails in with this like basically warp drive. Japan had never seen anything like it before that could cross the entire Pacific in a matter of days instead of months. And these incredible cannons that could fire accurately. And it just basically completely flipped the calculus. Japan opened up. And it led to what is known as the Meiji Restoration. Jokichi Takamine was born the year after Commodore Perry came and right when this Treaty of Kanagawa was signed. That treaty was signed just about six or eight months before he was born. And that is that kind of set the stage for all sorts, not just America, but the Western powers to kind of start establishing footholds in Japan. That's right. I guess Perry showed up in 1853, made his demands, said, all right, I'm going to come back in a year think about it. But basically, you're going to do what I want you to do. He came back in six months. He didn't actually give them a year. Exactly. No, to quote the Godfather, he made him an offer he couldn't refuse, you know, kind of thing. It's like, you know, we're going to come back in with guns blazing is really the the kind of, and I don't think America had its heart set on attacking Japan or anything like that. Mm-hmm. They really, what they really wanted was a refueling depot. They wanted to be able to refuel their steamships with, with coal, which is what they burned. Mm-hmm. And they needed Japan as a kind of base to do that. It was in a really good location for them to do that going back and forth to Asia. Mm-hmm. And there was also a big issue of like, if you got washed up on shore as a shipwreck, they would basically throw you in jail. Yep. America wanted to address those things first and foremost, and then open Japan to trade as a sort of secondary thing. Right. And speaking of refueling, the Commodore Perry expedition actually 
came back bearing gifts, including Western alcohols, most importantly, whiskey. Oh, yes. I actually happen to have with me a copy of the manifest of uh, Perry's return. The alcohol list alone is, is pretty impressive. This would have been one heck of a party. One barrel whiskey for the emperor, one cask wine for the emperor, a quantity of cherry cordials for both the emperor and the uh, other associated officials, a number of baskets of champagne, a quantity of maraschino. You know, the maraschino, uh, I'm not sure how this is different from cherry cordial because that's a cherry flavored liqueur. Right, right. Uh, many boxes of tea, 10 ship's beakers, each containing 100 gallons of whiskey. This is just in addition to like the, the weapons, steam trains, telegraph, like all sorts of stuff that they brought for the Japanese. But they had a wild party yep. to celebrate the signing of that Kanagawa uh, declaration. And it sounds like that was the first time Japanese had ever tasted whiskey and cordials and things like that. And it sounds like they enjoyed themselves very, very much. Yes. Apparently, one of the uh, samurai, at least one of them, got quite affectionate with the <laughs> with the American uh, officers, which was probably confusing to everyone. And the other thing is, it sounds like that, that whiskey for the emperor never actually made it to the emperor. It was uh, probably disappeared and, and enjoyed on its way to Kyoto. Yes. Perry did not really understand the hierarchy and how the Japanese governmental system worked back then, where the emperor was kind of cloistered in Kyoto. The shogun was actually running the show. And it, it's probably pretty likely that the emperor wouldn't want any of that stuff. The emperor was desperately, desperately wishing that these foreign barbarians would sail away and, and forget about Japan all over again. But as we know, that didn't play out that way, did it? We stayed. That's <laughs> so. right. We did. We did. Yeah. So I guess getting back to Takamine, Jokichi was born November 3rd, 1854. We gave you a little historical context there. He was born in the city of Takaoka in Kaga Domain, which is today Toyama Prefecture. He was the first child of 13 <laughs> children. Wow. Uh, born to, at the time, a 27-year-old samurai physician named Seiichi Takamine and his 19-year-old wife, Yukiko Tsuda, who was actually the daughter of a sake-making family. First of all, Samurai Physician is the name of a new like prestige TV show I'd like to launch on Netflix or something. What an awesome title. I think it's really interesting that Takamine's mother was uh, the heir to a sake-making family because that was a very lucrative field to be in. Families could accumulate a lot of wealth that way. And you know who else had that kind of background was Sony's uh, Akio Morita. He came from a shoyu, a, a soy brewing and a sake brewing family. So those types of family businesses created kind of a lot of wealth and elite statuses. Mm -hmm. And I think it's pretty safe to say that Jokichi was raised in the lap of luxury in Japan. He was not an average Japanese kid. And also being the firstborn son, that meant everything back then. You basically had the heir to the entire family's fortunes. That's right. And clearly, I mean, her family must have been well off enough that she could marry into a samurai family. Definitely. And also, I think it's really key to, to note that he never knew a time when Japan wasn't interacting with the outside world, uh, and in America in particular. So he grew up in a very, very different Japan than his parents had. I'm mean, a huge generational paradigm shift. Yeah, no question. And he took full advantage of this, as you'll as we'll describe. As I said, he was the eldest of 13 children. He had five brothers and seven sisters. And it seems like he was quite hardworking and studious as a young man, so much so that the Kaga Domain Lord, we're still in the feudal system in these early days uh, of this era, actually sent him to Nagasaki at the age of 10 to study what was known as Dutch learning. 
Yes, Rangaku. Rangaku. And this was the way that that's what it was called in Japanese. And at that time, all information about the outside world funneled into Japan through Dutch scholars, Dutch people, Dutch books, Dutch texts. And so if you wanted to be a kind of have any interest in the outside world, you had to learn to speak and read Dutch. And it's actually likely that through that, the Japanese knew more about the Americans than the Americans did about them when they first arrived. I believe it's said that Takamine for his entire life spoke with a Dutch accent. He spoke English with a, with a slight Dutch accent, which I would have loved to have heard. Absolutely. Yeah. So he lived with a Portuguese family in Nagasaki, which is where the port Dejima was. That's a Dutch trading port. Yes. But by this time, some other immigrants had moved in and this Portuguese family was there. And that's when he started to study English. Interesting that he was learning. Apparently, he had a Dutch instructor who taught him English with a Dutch accent. Yes. And Takamine's father, also the samurai physician, Seichi, was also a scholar of Dengaku, of the Dutch learning. Yeah, because you'd get medical technology through the Dutch too. So it makes sense that a, it's interesting. It's, it's a, it's, this is a very, very intellectual family, I, I think you could say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and actually intellectual, but like with an overlap with business. Mm-hmm. You know, So these are two kind of directions that are coming together in, in, in Takamine that are going to blossom in later years. Oh, absolutely. To continue his education in 1868, at the age of 13, he moved to Kyoto and then Osaka, first for military training and then to begin high school. And that was also the first year of what's known as the Meiji Restoration. The Meiji Restoration, the Emperor Meiji uh, uh, took uh, power in Japan. He took power and, and they abolished the caste system. The emperor became the head of the Japanese government. And uh, the Meiji Emperor launched this very audacious plan to modernize Japan. And that involved bringing in all sorts of foreign scholars. When I hear that Jokichi Takamine was doing military training, it makes me wonder if he ran into Tom Cruise, uh, because the last <laughs> the last samurai is actually it's fiction, of course. Uh, Tom Cruise was not in Japan in 1868. But that story of how they hired experts from all sorts of fields abroad to come in and teach the Japanese is very much based in fact. And it's entirely likely that uh, Takamine interacted with Western military folks who were coming in as consultants, Western doctors, all sorts of Western chemists, all sorts of things. This is a really kind of dynamic time, not only in Takamine's life, but Japanese history, okay? And to be brutally honest, this wasn't a great time to be in Japan as a foreign person. There were all sorts of groups who were really angry about having their titles abolished, as I'm sure you can imagine. They were really angry about all of these foreign people pouring into the country, as I'm sure you can imagine. And there was even like these extremist groups. One of the biggest ones was uh, uh, Son no Joi, which means revere the emperor and expel the barbarians. I don't think there was much room for negotiation with these guys. And if you were a foreign person walking on the street late at night and a, you know, a disgraced Ronin happened across your path, you might get sliced down in your tracks. That happened many times around this time in history. And there's some major, major incidents involving well-armed Americans or, or Europeans with guns shooting at samurai in the streets. It's like kind of a very, very dynamic moment in, in history. Yeah, it's, it, it is a fascinating period for sure. And, and such rapid change. And Jokichi was riding that wave and just continuing his education very rapidly, advancing through high school and then into university where he studied medicine and chemistry and continued his English education in Osaka. And then in 1872, he makes a jump to Tokyo, where he would become part of the first graduating class at Tokyo University's College of Engineering 
with a degree in applied chemistry. He had basically given up on medicine. He just fell in love with chemistry at that point. And arguably, the world is better off for it. Is it is it not? He went on to do a lot of things in that background. But there were, of course, many Japanese who were angry about what was happening. There were many Japanese, especially younger ones who were incredibly and younger and, and well-off ones who could afford to go to college and things like that, who were incredibly excited about the potential of interacting with the West. There's, there's many other people at this time. Takamine was not the only person studying foreign stuff. And there were a lot of interesting people in those early Tokyo University classes. So he was, like you say, very much a man of his era. This is a time when for the average Japanese, they might never leave their home domain. Yes. And if they did, it would be for short trips. Yes. He's now in his early 20s and he's gone from Kaga to Nagasaki to Kyoto to Osaka to Tokyo. Yes. And, you know, for his parents, it was illegal for his parents' generation. It was illegal to move around. You, you, couldn't, mm-hmm. you couldn't travel freely back before the Meiji Restoration. The only reason that people were ever allowed to travel was religious pilgrimages to shrines and things like that. You couldn't say, oh, you know what? I'm going to move to Edo. Like, you just, you weren't allowed to do that. You'd have been stopped at the gates, literally, um, and turned back. Right. He's already living this completely different life than his parents did. You know, you don't want to talk about culture shock or like, you know, generational, you know, change. This is, this is it right here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that change happened really the big shock to his family, I think happened when he was in Tokyo when the samurai class was officially abolished. Right. Fortunately, his father being a physician was still employable. His mother had the sake brewery. So they were still doing fine, but a lot of other samurai weren't. No. It was a really huge disruption in, in employment in that class of, of, of Japanese citizens. Definitely. And especially down south, uh, southwest, like the Mito and outside and up north, to outside of the big cities. In the 1860s, there was a huge attack, like the Ronin attacked the British legation, uh, which is basically to say the, the, the British embassy, which is just a guy, a couple guys in Tokyo. And you had this pitched battle in their compound in Tokyo, Westerners with pistols, bullwhips, and shotguns on one side, samurai on the other. And this was happening over and over again in the background while, while Takamine is studying and trying to better himself and, and, and interact with the outside world. There's forces inside his country trying to turn the clock back. Yeah. Just really, really probably exciting and terrifying. and Oh, definitely. And that's his time in Japan, but that's about to change as well. Things are about to get more adventurous to him. He is granted a scholarship to study abroad, and he enrolls in Glasgow University to study Western industrial engineering practices, and he'd study abroad until 1883. Perhaps that's where he got his first taste of scotch? Seriously? Maybe, yeah. Yeah. You yeah, know. it certainly could be. I mean, who else studied it? Glasgow University. Ah. Another than Masataka Takesudu. Yes. Yeah. Another person with a storied uh, link to Japanese whiskey. Yeah. And actually, somebody else who studied in Glasgow, but not necessarily at the university, was another Japanese person involved in alcohol production. And that was Kanai Nagasawa, who ended up making wine in California. Oh, interesting. I'd love to do an episode about him. Unfortunately, he didn't make distilled alcohol, so it doesn't fit the profile of this podcast. Right. But maybe we'll make an exception because his story on its own is just absolutely fascinating. I I have to admit, I'm not really familiar with uh, Nagasawa's story, so I'd love to hear that. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about that sometime. So in 1883, he returns to Japan to work for the Department of Agriculture and Commerce, where he's assigned with modernizing three industries. This is his job. Basically, his first job after all of his studies He's tasked with modernizing Japanese indigo dye production, paper production, and sake production. That's a big task for for a young man in his 20s. 
Yeah, I mean, one guy assigned all this stuff, but it's it's a it's a mark of how the Japanese government is basically trying to compete globally, however it can, using local industries. And it wasn't limited to stuff like this. They were trying to compete with like toys. That was a, a big thing because toys were a big export industry. Uh, Germany owned that back then, and all sorts of other domestic industries that they thought they could use to get a leg up on foreign trade. And Takamine again, tip of the spear. He's heading out into the world to to kind of make Japan great. And, and working hard to do it. As many of these young men were doing, he was working for the government rather than in private industry. And he was part of the 1884 delegation uh, to the World's Fair in New Orleans, which was his first trip to the States. Man, can you imagine your first visit to the States is 1880s New Orleans? <laughs> I mean, New Orleans is a great town no matter what. But I mean, that's... That is an amazing time in New Orleans history. It's and it's also there's there's besides Takamine there's there's other connections to Japan as well. Uh, it's likely that Takamine took a young journalist named Lafcadio Hearn under his wing there, and I am I, I am I, I believe that it may be Takamine who convinced Lafcadio Hearn to go to Japan, who who certainly convinced him about the you know the interesting nature of Japan. Takamine's house where he lived in New Orleans is actually still standing today. My wife and I went and visited it when we were there. It's it's a private house, but it was being renovated. And we actually uh, convinced the uh, the contractors to let us go in and look around in like the kind of living room. I don't know what you'd call it back in that Victorian era. Vaulted ceiling, just beautiful woodwork, fireplaces and things. I love to imagine Takamine there, you know, savoring a distilled beverage, you know, with the, the intellectual class of New Orleans of the late 1880s. Yeah, I think that might have been called a parlor. That's what it sounds like. A parlor. Yes. Yes. A parlor. It's interesting. I mean, Lafcadio Hearn was a newspaper man. And then Takamine ended up getting quite a bit of press while he was in New Orleans as part of the delegation. He was actually sometimes referred to as royalty, even though he, his family had lost their titles. It sounds like the whole Japanese delegation was really wined and dined while they were there. And on that trip, he falls in love. 30 years old, meets a young American woman named Caroline Hitch, just 18-year-old debutante. There's a newspaper article about the party where they likely met, and I'll quote it. It's a very enjoyable affair was given last Thursday evening at the residence of Captain E.V. Hitch by a number of young gentlemen in compliment of charming young ladies who had a week previously acted as hosts. A party of young ladies and gentlemen chaperoned by Mr. and Mrs. Ralston of California witnessed the performance at the St. Charles Theater last Friday evening. Among the charming young ladies at the soiree was Caroline Carrie Hitch. One of the gentlemen hosts was Jay Takamini, <laughs> described as a distinguished Japanese nobleman now on a mission to the exposition. So this is a really interesting happening. Carrie Hitch's family must have been very open-minded because, to be brutally honest, America was an incredibly racist place at the time, and Asians were seen as second-class citizens. I'm sure the idea that Takamine was some kind of royalty was a factor in this, but he must have been a very, very charming, very intelligent guy to win over the heart not only of Carrie, but also her family. Because I, you know, this wasn't kind of an era where emancipated women would go off and like how galvan around the world. Their families were involved in these uh, sorts of affairs and, and and marriages and things like that. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the legal standing was for a Japanese person to marry a Western person at that time, but like I don't know that the bureaucracy around that, certainly immigration and things like that, weren't as developed as they are now. Right, but it happened, and it's an amazing thing. It's a you know a real bridging of of Japan and America. That's right. I think he certainly 
fell in love with her. And, and it seems she was quite taken with him as well. But he didn't have the resources at that time, I think, to marry her and whisk her back to Japan. So he did what any enterprising young man might do. He tried to figure out a way to make enough money to be able to afford marrying this young woman. So when he got home, he didn't leave the government immediately. He actually was transferred to run the Japanese patent office. Wow. At the age of 30, can you imagine running your government's or your country's patent office? What a time. I'm a former uh, U.S. Patent and Trademark Office employee. I worked as a translator there for about five years from, from age 25 to 30, and I can't imagine running the whole place. <laughs> right. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the Patent and Trademark Offices of Japan and, and America are much more complicated sorts of places now than they were in 1880. Uh, yep. but, uh, but even still, hats off to him as a, as a fellow, you know, patent person. Hats off to him. Yeah, I think he's demonstrated that he's he's a he's a genius at this point. Yes, Very hard work. Totally, totally competent. <laughs> totally. It's it's also telling that Japan realized patents how important they were. Japan's modernization was not some kind of half-assed affair. They really studied and figured out what they needed to do to compete with the West, and patents were definitely part of that. So mm -hmm. he would shortly thereafter actually leave government employment, and he actually established Asia's first superphosphate mine. This is like a Marvel movie. This is amazing. Okay, super phosphate mine, right? I mean, it is Tony Stark, right? Yeah, so he establishes this super phosphate mine. His first customer is a Louisiana farmer who buys 2,100 tons wow. of his fertilizer. And so he's got his money. He immediately goes back to New Orleans and marries Caroline. And now he is a man of the world. That's right. And this the same newspaper that, he, that had talked about him back during the exposition wrote up their wedding and wrote a brilliant wedding, the sequel to a happy love affair. So apparently they were big fans of his. And how did they spend their post-wedding life? Well, you can imagine at this time, it's not like you jump on an airplane and go back to Japan. Right. So they had some time on their hands. So they traveled across the US by train. And to see just what a romantic he was on their honeymoon, he visited fertilizer plants and studied US patent law. Honey, honey, I'm going to take you to the greatest place in all of Illinois, the fertilizer plant, uh, you know, but yeah, hey, you know, he's making a, this, this is not some layabout. He's, he's making a fortune for this family. So I can, I can kind of imagine he must have had his charms, you know, they, they did, she, she, he convinced her to move back to Japan with them and, and they had two kids together. That's right. Yeah. But that almost didn't happen because he got seriously ill on the voyage home on the ship with a serious liver condition that would really affect him periodically throughout the rest of his life. Yeah, and that must have been tough. But, you know, now you can just go down to the doctor's office. There's all sorts of medicines. Back then, I think, you know, the treatments for these sorts of things were really limited. So that's a scary kind of diagnosis. Yeah, especially at that age. He's still in his early 30s. Yeah. And he's, he's suddenly got pretty serious internal disease. But uh, he does recover. Uh, they have two children after they move back to Tokyo, Jokichi Jr. and Ebenezer. Wow. They don't name kids like that anymore, do they? Well, I love that they made the Western Junior. Yeah. Right? They yeah. put that as actually part of his name. And then Ebenezer. Ebenezer must have been like, oh, man. Well, I mean, Ebenezer Scrooge. Isn't that Scrooge's first name? Yeah. Like, it, was, it must have been like, a, you know, Joe Smith back then. You know what I mean? Ebenezer is, is just a, a very common first name. Yeah. He was smart enough to go by Eben. He, yeah. didn't, he didn't go right. by Ebenezer. So. <laughs> Unfortunately, Caroline really doesn't adapt well to Japan. You can, as you mentioned, the, the anti-foreigner resentment and that sort of thing. Here she is, this early 20s American woman, never been out of her own country, dropped in Tokyo during this, this volatile time. Very volatile. 
What would that have been like for a woman, do you think? It must have been pretty tough because I don't think you could have gone out unescorted as a Western woman on the street then. The, the epicenter of culture, of Western culture in Japan at that time was actually in Yokohama. I'm not sure where they lived at this point, but I know that Lafcadio Hearn, who was living around in, in various places in Japan starting at this time, would take the train from Tokyo to Yokohama regularly so that he could get cocktails and and have Western food at the Yokohama Grand Hotel. So I suspect that they spent a lot of time in places like that, but when they were not in those sort of Western enclaves, it must have been extremely, extremely... She couldn't speak Japanese as far as I'm aware. She certainly didn't understand the intricacies of Japanese culture, and it must have been a huge, huge shock to her to be living in Japan of the 1880s. Yeah, I can imagine, because her husband at this point speaks very good English. He's been studying since he's 10, right? Yeah. And now he's in his 30s, so his English is probably quite good. Yes. And so she comes back to a country where she expects similar and nobody speaks English. Well, and also like, you know, she'd been told he's nobility. I'm not sure they were living in a castle or anything like that when they came back. There might there might have been some kind of adjustment there too. Fair. Caroline's mother to the rescue, actually. She's she's the one who makes the makes the call or sends the telegram, I guess. It wouldn't have been a telephone at that time. But she makes an offer they can't refuse. She wants Chokichi and the family to move back to the US and start what becomes known as the Takamine Ferment Company. Hmm which they do in 1890. We glossed over it a little bit in the beginning, but Takamine's mother came from the sake brewing family, right? Yeah. Which means he'd been around sake production his whole life yeah. and would almost certainly have studied koji fermentation during his training as an applied chemist. And remember, he was assigned the project of a modernizing sake. Right for the Department of Agriculture. So it's something he likely spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah. I mean, you know, sake was a major industry in Japan. So it makes a lot of sense that the government would isolate that and look at that as some way, maybe we can export this. You know, everybody loves to drink, you know, they, we love their wine. Why wouldn't they love our, our sake? And and it's, there's all sorts of other, you know, adjacent uh, fields around there like soy sauce, mm -hmm. you know, other fermentation based fields and things like that. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And of course, he became an expert in koji fermentation through all of that work that he did. And to learn about that, of course, you can go back to episode 38, Koji the Magical Mold. Oh, what a title. Yeah, we try to catch him. We try to catch him. <laughs> <laughs> so he had that experience working in the patent office, obviously. And, and he knew that from his own family experience that fermentation equals money. So I, I know that he applied for and received patents in the United States and the UK for a takamine process to make alcohol using koji for the sacrification to replace malting. Back in time now, the way that you make whiskey is to malt. You have to malt the barley. Uh, and his process involved using koji to draw out those sugars instead. It was a completely different process. Uh, you know more about this than I do, but uh, it, was, it was a big deal. Yeah, no, it really was. And it's it's also hard to imagine that flying today. It just shows how siloed the world was at that time. Right. Because a brewing process that had been used for over a thousand years in Japan could be patented in the West. Yes. yes. <laughs> Although, you know, he's he he's doing it's interesting. I it, it's it's you can do when I was working at the patent office, we would often get patents for malted beverages of, of different types. I remember one of the first ones that I ever translated was for a sparkling sake beverage which I had never heard of in the uh, mid-90s when I started working there, but it, it definitely became a big deal in the in the aughts. So you can patent kind of things that are adjacent to – you can't obviously patent fermentation, but using fermentation in a different way could certainly be something patentable. 
I think it's it's actually a window in just how visionary he was that he came up with this. Like he invented this completely revolutionary way of doing something people had done forever and applying it to kind of more of a Western beverage. That That's really interesting. Yeah, certainly. And again, as you implied, not something anybody in the West would have known anything about or had ever experienced before. No. So certainly a, a novel production method. Well, cliffhanger folks, we're actually going to stop right now. You're going to learn all about what Takamine does in America in our next episode, which you can hear in a couple of weeks. Matt will be back with us to finish this conversation. Thank you so much for joining the Japan Distilled Podcast. But before we go, can you tell us a little bit about Pure Invention? Yeah, Pure Invention is a sort of cultural detective story to try to answer the burning question of why we love Japan so much and things from Japan so much. It exerts this kind of strange cultural pull over all of us. And I hit on the idea that the reason for this is because of these sorts of essential inessentials, as I call them, like objects that Japan made that we didn't need to live, but once we saw them, we just couldn't resist, like the karaoke machine or the Walkman, the Game Boy, Pokemon, emojis. Like there's so, so many things that Japan made that quite literally transformed the way we live, which is why the subtitle of the book is How Japan Made the Modern World, because you can't really imagine the modern world without a lot of this stuff from Japan that we use to live our modern lives. Yeah, it's almost commercial diplomacy. Yeah, no, it totally is. It totally is because Japan made itself wealthy after World War II by selling the world all the things that it needed, like cars and appliances and stuff like that. But it made itself loved by selling us stuff that we didn't need, but we desperately wanted the minute that we saw it. So that that kind of idea that Japan could sort of win over hearts and minds through fantasies is exactly what I wanted to explore in Pure Invention. It's fun. It's uh, The things that we love about Japan are fun, whether it's gadgets or Hello Kitty or whether it's the fun labels that you see on Japanese, you know, shochu bottles or sake bottles. There's a lot of whimsy and play out there uh, for a country that has often, I think, unfairly been mischaracterized as kind of stoic. That was one of the big things I wanted to explore in the book. It's really what gives Japan its charm to the outside world. Definitely. Japan has this image and a well-deserved reputation for its, its shokunin waza, its craftspersonship. You see that in the rigor and the seriousness with which people approach everything from making sake or, or shochu to the way they create cutting-edge video games. There's the creation and then there's the kind of consumption. And the way we love this, the reason we love this stuff is because it's often so much fun. And that was what I, I wanted to dive into. How does Japan make this stuff that we find so fun? You know? Yeah, absolutely. If you think about one of the most famous video games of all time is two Italian guys looking for mushrooms. Yes, exactly. How is that a thing? <laughs> exactly. Hello Kitty. Hello Kitty, is, she's actually supposed to be British. It's human nature that we are attracted to novelty, but we don't want it to be too different from what we know, right? And Japan and Japanese creators are really experts at hitting the sweet spot of something that is evocative of something we already know, but goes off in this kind of random new direction that we never really expected. And you see this all over the place, whether it's in comic books and anime or video games, or even in the way that they create and market their drinks, their alcohol, uh, beers, wines, you know, all sorts of things. They're often very playful about the, the way that they do it. And, and that sense of play, I think, is what has made Japan this kind of fantasy superpower in the minds of so many people. Yeah, well, I can't wait to read it. I'm, I'm actually, I'm what? sorry, you I haven't, haven't yet. yet. You haven't yet. <laughs> I, How do, no, I, it's, it's great. Yeah, that sounds like something I will just rip through when I have the chance to finally sit down with it. Over the last couple of years, I've had so little time to read, right? That I've made that one of my New Year's resolutions. I am 
sitting down and reading a book yes. every day, even if it's you know a, pa- a paper book. Right. <laughs> it really is a kind of restorative activity. So not just my book. Read all sorts of books, please. No question. Read my book too. <laughs> I will. Um, I own your book. <laughs> See, unlike you, I read your book. <laughs> <laughs> Well, really, really appreciate you coming on the show and so much fun geeking out over Jokichi Takamine. I will absolutely read Pure Invention at first opportunity and everyone else should too. Pick up a copy. I'm sure it's available at all fine booksellers, Amazon, etc. It absolutely is. Amazon, wherever fine books are sold. But really, thank you for having me. I love just hanging out, even when we're not talking about Jokichi Takamine, but uh, whenever he's in the mix, you know I'm always down. Great. Well, thank you very much. Where can people find you on social media? I'm on Twitter at Matt underscore alt. I'm on Instagram at altmattalt. You can find me at mattalt.com. I'm, I'm everywhere alts are found. <laughs> I'm that alt key on your keyboard. Uh, but check it out. I geek out about this stuff uh, that I talk about both here on the podcast and my book all the time on social media. So if you're into fun Japanese stuff, by all means, follow me and let's, let's geek out. Sounds fantastic. Thank you all very much for listening. If you're not already, please consider rating and reviewing the Japan Distilled podcast wherever you enjoy listening. It really helps others find the show. Feel free to reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram at Japan Distilled. Please check out our website, japandistilled.com, for show notes on this and every episode. And of course, we have our Japan Distilled Show Tuesday live stream every Tuesday evening, 8 p.m. Eastern and 10 a.m. Wednesday here in Japan. And finally, don't forget to sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash japandistilled. Kampai. Kampai. <laughs> <laughs>